Look back. If once you're started in living, you're born into sin then? And how do you atone? By locking yourself up in remorse for what you might have done? Or by living it through? By locking yourself up in remorse with what you know you have done? Or going back and living it through? By locking yourself up with your work until it becomes a gessoed surface all prepared clean and smooth as ivory? Or by living it through? By drawing lines in your mind? Or by living it through? If it was a sin from the start, and possible all the time, to know it's possible and avoid it? Or by living it through? You see, listen, listen, listen here. If the prospect of sin draws us on, but the sin is only boring and dead the moment it happens, it's only the living it through that redeems it. Listen, whoever started a journey without the return in the, in the front of his mind, Goodbye, hear? The bells, the old man ringing me on. Now at last, to live deliberately. What? No, there's no more you and I. The work will know its own reason. Here, yes. We'll simplify. Here, the old man ringing me on. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Friday, March 26, 2021, Passover in Japan. And today, for our slightly overdue winter seasonal book club, we are bookending the Trump administration by rereading William Gaddis's 1955 masterwork, The Recognitions, which we first encountered in the fall of 2016 for 42 minutes number 249. The Recognitions is a sweeping depiction of a world in which everything that anyone recognizes as beautiful or true or good emerges as anything but. The book is a masquerade moving from New England to New York to, Mad- to Madrid, from the art world to the underworld, but it centers on the story of Wyatt Gwynn, the son of a New England minister who forsakes religion to devote himself to painting, only to despair of his inspiration. In expiation, he will paint nothing but flawless copies of his revered old masters. Copies, however, that find their way into the hands of a sinister financial wizard by the name of Rectal Brown, who, of course, sells them as the real thing. Dismissed uncomprehendingly by reviewers on publication in 1955 and ignored by the literary world for decades after, The Recognitions is now established as one of the great American novels, immensely ambitious and entirely unique. A book of wild, Boschian inspiration and outrageous comedy that is also profoundly serious and sad. Tonight we are joined by the 42-minute seasonal book club regulars to determine what, if anything, we recognize reading this great work a second time. Even Camilla enjoyed The Masquerades. How is everyone doing tonight? Great. Very good. Excellent. Thanks, Doug. You bet. Let's let's start with Snor's hot take. This is your first time to the book, right, Snor? Mm, yeah, this is my first time. So, uh, upon reading it a second time, I realized that I missed a ton the first time. What what is your relationship with this book? Um, 
Yeah, so I, I didn't, um, we were just talking about that earlier, but I didn't know about this book up until uh, I got an email from Alex years ago um, telling me about this book and then later on, I think, telling me that you guys are going to be reading it. But yeah, so that was you know, like what, 2015 or 2016 or something. Um, but I'm so surprised that I didn't know about it because it's such an, an amazing book. And it, for me, it really, uh, really ties in. It really represents kind of a bridge from uh, all the modernist writers that I that I really enjoy, like Pound and Joyce and Elliot and um, Wyndham Lewis, maybe those that group, and then uh, also the beat writers like Burroughs and Ginsburg and Kerouac, who are all contemporaries of Gaddis and living in the same place in New York at the same time. And then the bridge between those guys directly and then uh, Pynchon and afterwards David Foster Wallace and everybody else on that side. So I just, I don't know, I was, I was, I was blown away by this book. Um, so I, I read it um, through pretty quickly. Well, quickly enough, like it takes a long time to read anyways. It's, it's like 950 pages. But um, I, uh, I read it at a good pace. I, I sort of paced myself like 20 or 25 pages a day at least. And then um, I, I, I really loved it. I really couldn't put it down. And then afterwards, uh, so I finished it at the beginning of March, I guess it was. And uh, so I just reread all of my notes I made in the book, like all the way through the book. And uh, so I feel like now it's pretty fresh on my mind. It's almost like I, I reread a lot of it um, just now. So anyways, I'm really happy to Alex that he uh, recommended it at the, at the beginning. Well, this was your like third time to it, isn't it, Alex? Yeah, well, I was going to say that uh, I first started, I first heard about it because I was such a big fan of Dave Foster Wallace and just these big doorstop kind of novels in general in like college. And this would have been like 2008 or so, seven. And I got it from the library and I like read the first chapter. And that was like my first, and I kind of just, you know, didn't, I had other things going on. So I just left it behind then, but it was always in the back of my mind. So I've read the first 200 pages or so of this book probably like five or six times uh, just because, uh, you know, how you do with books. Um, but the back half of it, I, but the full thing I've completed, I think, twice now. This is the second time I've done like all the way through reading of it. So it's like I've been reading it like the whole time, you know, in a way it's sort of in the back of my mind. It's funny, like even the the first time I read it all the way through, I remember I read it on an iPad. I've read it and I've listened to it now and I've read it on an iPad e-reader or whatever. So it's like I've read it in these different media contexts. And I remember the first time I read it all the way through, I did it with the, on the iPad and like the, the EPUB file that I was reading, like the back half of it was all screwed up. So like there were no, all the paragraph breaks were gone. It was just a long stream of text. And I didn't even realize that until I'd gotten a certain way through. <laughs> so like the whole thing became jumbled. Um, and I don't even know if I ever actually got to the last chapter, the very final chapter, like the, just, I think I stopped somewhere very close to the end. 
And I'm just thinking about that and laughing because it's so like uh, I think kind of appropriate to like the the story of Stanley and the 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 finishing of of a piece of art as kind of killing it. And it's like I couldn't finish it. Like something was keeping me from finishing it. Um, so I would really argue that tonight when I finished reading it, it was the first time that I'd really hammered my way through it and like in internalized all of the connections well as much as the connections as I could I missed a ton also um and so yeah the other th- I guess the other re- thing about it is that going back to David Foster Wallace is that I love Infinite Jest so much and I think that this is probably the most single influential book on on that on Infinite Jest um stylistically and we can talk about more about that um so, yeah, that was a ramble, but you mentioned so this idea. So uh, when you say perfection is still possible, I'm thinking about Wyatt's picture of his mother that he he carried around. He never finished. And yeah. I don't. Re- Do you guys recall what became of that? Did it burn at some point? The Stabber well, ma- Mata. Yeah, I think it did burn in the uh, in the fire that he set. They put it, he he uh, he burned all his pictures as far as I as far as I know. Yeah, was that I'm pretty sure. Around the same time it. as the Christmas parties. Yeah, yeah. That was, so that's right. Yeah, right. Uh, right at the same time, like he's going into. Uh, or he goes back to Esther's house, and then he goes. He makes his way to uh, Valentine's place, and then he goes to Rectal Brown's party. Yeah, and so the last time we read that, I kind of interpreted those parties almost as postmodern noise. And I, I definitely recant that now. There is nothing, like, even though it seems like noise, that's what's really interesting this time, how tightly wound this little watch is. Like, everything is connected to everything else and all the people. So, like, I'm curious how you guys interpreted the title upon reading it this time. Well, I... uh, uh kind of tells us where he got it from um the recognitions was a uh what is it like second century um christian novel basically set up by this uh um they get called the uh, the pseudo clementines the sect small sect of early christians and it gets uh it, the the novel gets attributed to saint clement of of rome but it really wasn't by him but it's basically a uh, like a, a Christian mystery novel, um, like mystery in the big sense, in the, in the sort of medieval sense or, or even ancient sense, where it's like this uh, Clement who, who meets St. Peter, and St. Peter sort of initiates him into the uh, um, Christian mysteries. And so all the way through this novel, he refers to... Um, that original Christian novel, which is called, it gets called the first Christian novel. And at some point, Gaddis, um, in a letter or an interview or something, he said that this novel, The Recognitions, was the last Christian novel, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so, but he, it seems like he took the, uh, he found out about The Recognitions, the the first Recognitions, through um Robert Graves, the White Goddess. Um, so that's an interesting uh, uh, 
you want me to read that? That's really interesting from from the White Goddess. I don't know if we want to get that deep into it right away, but uh, sure. Um, it just so um, he's just got a paragraph in here. This is from Robert Graves, and and uh, so the. The White Goddess was a massive influence on Gaddis, and he's. I was reading through his letters, and Gaddis's letters, and he sent. A, he was in Spain um, doing research for this novel, or just traveling around, or whatever. And he got his mother to specifically deliver the White Goddess to him in Spain. This is in '49, I think it was, and also uh, he got her to um, write down a long quote from. Uh, the golden bow about the uh, the monkey sacrifice <laughs> she could talk about but so his mother sent him the white goddess in spain and then he read it he loved it he it was exactly what he wanted and it was uh, it set his mind on fire and he ends up the next year in 1950 going to meet uh robert graves the poet in uh, majorca and they hang out together and robert graves becomes the model like the physical model for for Guion or, or Gwyn or whatever, Reverend Gwyn. But anyway, so the passage in this book is, uh, says the mystical Essene Ebionites of the first century AD believed in a female Holy Spirit and those members of the sect who embraced Christianity and de- developed into second century Clementine Gnostics made the Virgin Mary the vessel of this Holy Spirit whom they named uh, Michael, who is like God. According to the Clementines, whose religious theory is popularized in a novel called The Recognitions, the identity of true religion in all ages depends on a series of incarnations of the wisdom of God, of which Adam was the first and Jesus the last. In this poem of Gwyn's, so he he takes the name uh, Gwion or Gwyn from from this as well, from the white goddess. Uh, Gwyn is uh, like a Welsh poet kind of a mythical, weird Welsh bard who writes this poem about the Battle of the Trees, which the White Goddess is all about interpreting that um, that poem and figuring out the whole sort of mythology of poetry and language of poetry through that through that poem. And so uh, so according in, in this poem of Gwyn's Adam has no soul after his creation until Eve animates him. Which is this whole thing blows blows my mind away, you know. It's like, a, um, so it's uh, this idea that there's this, uh, the Holy Spirit is feminine and she reappears through history and, and is able to give poets, real poets, the recognition of God in matter. Um, which I think is the whole, the whole sort of core of the, of the book. Yeah, like what is, what is true. Yeah, even even seeing like the fragments of, uh, um, the fragments of divinity in in in, uh, in matter. Like he's always talking about. Uh, he he talks about T. S. Eliot um, all the way through too. as a massive influence, and T. S. Eliot's wastelands is the big discussion. There is the fragments. Everything is broken down into fragments. Um, and this is one thing that Stanley keeps talking about throughout the novel. Oh, the palimpsest, the, his, his palimpsest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where he's not actually doing the thing. He's like, uh, yeah, I mean, he's kind of, he's waiting for it to be perfect before he does the actual manuscript itself. Is that palimpsest? 
I don't, yeah, I don't it's know. it's it's like a uh, it's it's a layering of of influences or, or things that you see. So everything gets sort of splintered off into layers and fragments, and still, in, instead of coming together as a whole. Since I'm just like, thinking. Well, I'm just thinking about the word. Just the word. That's all really, really interesting. Um, I didn't know that about Robert Graves and everything. But just thinking about the word itself, recognition. Uh, recognition, recognition, pattern recognition. I mean, that's that's sync in 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 a way. It that is what it is. It's all about seeing sort of the super God or the Holy Spirit or Stanley Kubrick or whatever in 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 matter in media in experience. And it's a recognition, so it's it's sort of this repeat, repetition, and that's just a constant theme of this book is that this constant re uh, recapitulating, reenacting of everyone. Everyone is reenacting everyone else in a way, like they're they're plagiarizing. All the, these characters in New York are all just repeating things that they've heard. And you hear someone practicing it, and then they and then 300 pages later, you hear someone else say it on a different continent in the same words, and so it's just this constant reality is in this constant state of reconfiguring itself, and uh, the recognition of of the process is is the experience of the of God, I guess, or the Holy Spirit, and. Yeah, it happens on every page of this book. Like you just you said it. Like everything is connected, uh, and it's hard to keep keep track. It really started this. I don't know if it started it, but this sort of trend in writing where uh, maybe it's postmodern. It's sort of pensionesque where things are just described obliquely. Like events are described at angles that you can't really. You're not sure at any time what's really happening. And you kind of have to recognize it <laughs> at all times to kind of put together the picture of what actually is the story. So, like, I went back and read through the synopsis um, of it after I finished it just to see, like, what I missed. And I'm like, holy shit. I, I, Anselm castrates himself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, there's several other things that happened that I didn't catch at the end. They're crucial things characters i'm like guessing who is it who is it who is it uh anyway yeah that's what i took this time is that it's almost like a game that he wrote it so vague that you don't realize that you know this character from this other scene is now in in the frame with the yeah. the, the current principles but you can only tell by the green scarf and unless you right. you really read deeply enough to know you recognize oh. the green scarf. <laughs> right. So it's like recognizing the, the characters as they move. So that's the, the interesting thing. Like how tightly wound. Like we were we were talking about that the last meeting, how the the fraudulent doctor that kills Wyatt's mother on the on the boat um is like, the counterfeiter. Yeah. But then like his son is, you know, is uh with Esme, I think, right? It's, yep. It's yeah, not Chibi. Esther, yeah. Chavy. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. also takes pictures of her, maybe makes dirty movies. Right. And then 
Yeah, and Frank Sinistera shows up at the very end in Madrid with, yeah. with Wyatt, who and is they, now right. called Steven, who is like not. Uh, well, and I Stephen. missed that last time too. That and then uh, as Wyatt <laughs> then moves Steven. through the novel without his name, you know, like we get to recognize him as a person again as Steven at the end as he exits, basically. Yeah, and Esme too. Uh, there's yeah, Esme loses her name too. Right, they sort of d- dissolve as characters. But the first time I read it, all these characters really bled into each other. And this time I definitely had a a strong sense of, you know, the difference between Wyatt and Otto and Stanley and Anselm. But the ones that I was having more difficulty with were like, uh, you know, some of the more square guys who are working. Yeah. Ellery and Benny. Yeah. Don Bildow. Bildow. Uh, Ed Feasley is such a dick. Ed Feasley. (laughs) Carl. These are the Christ. mad men. Christ. The, the audiobook guy reads it. Christ. Christ. You know, I just, you know, not Christ. Well, yeah, that thing that you said, Alex, about uh, yeah, recognition, recognition. Um, and it's, I, I think it's like a, a platonic, basically. It's like the, the anamnesis, right? Like a, um, the loss of forgetting. So you're... Uh, you're remembering things that are already there that we should be recalling, but or, or seeing or perceiving, but we don't, you know, like the, and all the way through it, it talks about like there's a um, Zarathustra, there's a, I don't think it's Nietzsche's Zarathustra, it's like where it says, For me, an image slumbers in the stone. Um, so there's this idea that uh, painting or art in general, I guess writing as well, is just a. It's just a recovery of something that's already there, you know. Like trying to, uh, um, so when that's that's uh, Wyatt's whole theory of art basically is that he's not um, uh, he's not sort of doing mechanical reproductions of any any of the paintings that he. He's forges. rediscovering the the ultimate truth that the masters were. Yeah, that's right. He's he's like he's tuning in basically to that kind of. What he thinks uh, is kind of this, uh, uh, like mystical mindset of, of these these painters. Like uh, here's a so it says uh, so he believed the Flemish painters found God everywhere. There's nothing that God did not watch over. He has concern with the most insignificant objects in his life in, in life, and Flemish painters took as much as twenty perspectives. So instead of just having one perspective single point perspective is like 20 perspectives at art at the same time as much as that and the only the only way anything can have its own form and character is if it is looked at by god if it's recognized you know um so so you look at something as if you're looking at it through the eyes of god and then that's when you recognize uh whatever it is the holy spirit or whatever you know that but an, uh, another layer of the eyes of god which is part of the comedy is the Otto character, which is kind of William Gaddis himself. And he's writing this play the whole time and he's stealing lines from all his friends. And then the friends recognize themselves, but they don't really, but they almost recognize themselves in his play. That's not very good. Like, you know, they're like, does that sound so familiar? How, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then they, why, and then they does... blame, they blame him from copying from the sound and the fury. Oh, like Faulkner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
he's he's a great one too. And then but he he's the author the, itself, the, so that the God, the perspective, you know, taking it all in. And, and then and then his uh, his his play is called The Vanity of Time, <laughs> and he gets that title. He gets that title. This is a, such a weird thing. He gets that title from. <clears throat> it's a French novel that uh, Wyatt loans him or gives him, and Otto carries it around in his pocket all the time after that. It's called Adolphe or something. Um, and uh, inside of it, he finds, Otto finds a note, which is a note that Wyatt took of his father's, um, in, in, in the book it's called His Last Christian Sermon, mm-hmm. which is interesting because Gaddis calls the book the last Christian book. And so the, the last Christian sermon, and in that sermon, um, the Reverend Gwyn or Gwyn is, uh, is talking about the redemption of nature, the full redemption of nature. So it's still biblical at that point, but he's getting to the point where all of nature can be uh, redeemed by recognition, you know? And, the, and, and uh, so that was the last sermon that you hear about before um, Wyatt has his massive fever, a massive illness. And it was such, it struck him so much that he, uh, he wrote it down apparently and then left it in this book. And then uh, Otto finds the note afterwards and reads it and finds out that this is how we are redeemed from the vanity of time. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> the whole thing just <laughs> explodes my mind. You know, like like what you guys are saying. It's just uh, everything comes together. Otto is but such then... a. Uh, the... Well, go ahead. I was going to say, but the the next layer out is that the fact that if Otto is William Gaddis, that most of these people are probably like real, you know, he's basing these characters. So, uh, you know, we we discovered that Esme is based on, I've forgotten her name, Um, you know, Sherry Martinelli. Yeah. And so SM, Sherry Sherry Martinelli, SM or Esme. I did not know that. American painter, okay. Um, yeah, she's she's an incredible to to read about. But yeah, I don't know if you want to get into her. Well, I was gonna say that it seems like I don't know if Otto is the only one that's. I think he sees um, himself, Gaddis, that is, sees himself in Otto, but he sees himself in Wyatt and Stanley. Yeah, yeah, me too. As well, I think especially Probably those, those three. three. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think those are the three the three main ones, and then and. I was reading also, I think in the letters or whatever, like Max is based on a real person who is kind of a, a rival to Gaddis or was a kind of a rival. Like in, mm-hmm. in the same way he, uh, he slept with the same women that uh, Gaddis was interested in, including um, Sherry Martinelli. He, he winds up taking, taking the offer, offer of the critic yeah. you know, to, for money, for good notices, to basically saying yes to the corruption of the art world that Gaddis sort of avoided. Which is important at this point to note that one of his main inspirations was Faust for this book. And that's yeah. like the Faustian pact. Sure. But then also uh, Rectal Brown has got the Black Poodle that's following him around, which is some yeah. great comedy with Rectal Brown and then Fuller. His, 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 yeah, his servant is hilarious. Yeah, Fuller's excellent. 
Fuller is probably the only character that um, gets out of this story kind of with a happy ending. If yeah, I kind of read it right, you know, he he gets out, he gets away. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sadness in this. And then I don't know how literal we can take it because one of the guys... One of the guys had a baby. She's not very old, but she's pregnant. And I think it's she's impregnated by Anselm. Is that right? And that's why yeah, Anselm castrated himself? Yeah. That's uh, Don Bildo's daughter, yes. is that right? Daughter. Yes, that's right. But then, then uh, didn't Don Bildo go on the boat with everyone at the end of the book? It seemed like everyone just got on the boat and left. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that happened. Um, yeah, he he just kind of dipped out even though his daughter his six-year-old daughter is pregnant which makes me wonder like <laughs> if he was involved or something Possibly. well i don't know how literal we can take things at that point was what i was thinking you know right literal meaning the the story the events or what do you mean well like to have a, a pregnant six-year-old right well I see what you yeah. mean. Uh, he, he ends up, uh, Bildo gets screwed in the end as well. He's, he's like, buys this expensive suit while he's in Europe and he takes it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think he's taking a train to, to Paris, maybe. Um, and, uh, he exchanges it for the. He, he wants to get rid of his, his, his old clothes <laughs> and he means to wear his new suit on the train so he doesn't, he can get through customs or whatever. And it turns out to be this, uh, sailor suit or something from a little kid <laughs> yeah <laughs> so he Which basically has no clothes <laughs> funny that he winds up on a train with uh, with the suit for a for a child where before we saw wyatt and sinistera on the train with the literal corpse of a of a child <laughs> it's, it's a child right it's like a 14 year old yeah. girl that they stole from the which is a whole very dark place and in, in the story, like just the idea that of Wyatt, his ultimate forgery being like a human life, basically. But the, yeah. the ultimate thing that's really interesting is that the corpse that's headed to Rome to be uh, canonized, canonized, what is that called? Yeah, yeah it's his mother. It's, his it's Camilla. Yeah, yeah. this is a big mix up. <laughs> Which all comes so it, back from the very beginning, ties it back yeah. to the very beginning. Yeah, it's insane. And then, and then the, the 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 guy, of course, which you mentioned, that he's making a mummy of this this girl who was raped and killed, um, is is the same guy who in Sinistera who inadvertently kills his mother, um, right? <laughs> um, which is. <laughs> it's the, so tightly wound it just seems like i don't know how you like and he's he what is and he's he's now impersonating mr yak uh, so is, this is a crazy crazy point as well you know yeah go on with that well yeah he's impersonating mr yak who uh is i'm not gonna be able to remember exactly but his impersonation is it's like it's again like doubled. Yeah, it's over. it's 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 like uh, Mr. Yak is actually the pseudonym of this Romanian agent. Who that's the part that Habsburgs, reminds me of Infinite Jest. 
who the, the, the weird the kind of Vatican. Yeah, yeah, the weird political intrigue of Basil Valentine. I know, yeah. so he's such a strange, curious person too, Valentine in this. Um, uh, the thing that I was trying to figure out whether or not when when Rectal Brown fell down the stairs in the suit of armor, whether or not he jumped or if it was because the feet of the suit of armor were forgeries and that's what made him fall. And, the, and it had to do with, um, with Fuller's sympathetic magic too. Like he was right. performing these weird magic and he, and that was a weird conversation. Like he gets into a conversation with Wyatt and he asks Wyatt, um, is it all right to use, basically, is it all right to use evil means for a good purpose? <laughs> the good purpose is, 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 is killing Rectal Brown, basically. And then, but the evil means was using kind of black magic, sympathetic magic. Which is then, exactly then, why Wyatt is alive, which is because his father did the same thing. He used sympathetic magic to bring him back by sacrificing the ape. And it's Heracles, probably coming from the yeah. same. It's it's probably coming from the same source of, uh, of the the Golden Bow. I guess. Yeah. Well, so the the interesting thing this time is I realized how compressed it is. The the book pretty much takes place just in 1949, you know. So like it's leading right. up to. It's 1949 and 1950, I think. Yeah. 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 I just personally find that the the whole beginning section, the first chapter, and the the character of Reverend Gwyn. Oh, that's the other thing. Well, I'll just continue. It's just some of the most exquisite writing of any book I've ever read. It's just my opinion. Uh, I love oh, it so much. Yeah, the first chapter is, is is probably my favorite too. Like it's so compelling to read the first yeah. chapter. Just totally sucks you in. Yeah. That and yeah, and that and basically everything of his childhood and um it's really amazing. Um but yeah, I, I um I just love the weird religious side to this whole novel. You know, yeah. It's, it's yeah, basically yeah. a novel which, about religion. The, the, of a witch. the man, <laughs> one of the themes that comes up continually through Esme is this this man. Uh, it's the anchor on the gravestone. Do you, do you remember that? The rope that comes from the sky. No, keep going. Isn't, isn't that um, the Charles Ford reference, or no, or fished no. for? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He so he talks. That repeats a lot about being fished, fished for by by God or by by the divine. That's probably what it is. Well, there's something else you're talking about because there's definitely something about a guy, you know, being having an anchor tied to his neck and drowning. Although I don't remember the context. Yeah, there was something um, about the uh, the. Uh, the ship, you know, when when finally when they're on that big cruise ship, I guess going across the Atlantic, and then and then they come across the original Purdue Victory yes, ship so. again, and Esme is convinced that Wyatt's on the ship and he has almost drowned. Um, 
Well, they fish and, somebody out after the boat sinks, and she yeah, thinks and it's him. Yeah, and she's convinced that it's him. Yeah, and then yeah, that whole that whole section is so obscure. We don't know what went on really between Stanley and Ismay. Yeah, um, that was very confusing to read. And the Stanley, cold man uh, who turns out to be Basil Valentine. Yeah, who you know I thought was dead. Um, you think he's dead? Are you? kind of assume that he has died because what happened, he's stabbed by Wyatt. Yeah. Um, Although if you read it closely, you can kind of tell because the narrator kind of implies his survival. But if you're not paying, if you're not paying close enough attention. um, So he never really mentions his character's name again either, I don't think. He's just the cold man from Esme. And he's, you see him wearing a sling because of Mm. his injuries, but you think it's Otto because Otto is seen with the sling all the time, which is another hilarious turnaround where at the beginning he, he, he goes to uh, you know, South America or whatever, comes back with this fake injury and a sling to impress everybody. And then at the end of it, he finds himself back in South America with a real injury and a real sling Um calling these random field workers by the names of his friends from New York. It's like really (laughs) kind of dark sort of like just, I don't know, situation he finds himself in. He gets, he gets this rare many airs disease or something. Yeah. Rare disease that, uh, it's, it's basically like an extreme case of vertigo. Um, where he just, he, he can't do anything. He just falls down all the time. (laughs) <laughs> so one of the other uh, misrecognitions is when Sinistera thought that Otto was the guy who was supposed to take the uh, the beautiful counterfeit bills. And so I needed to figure out what $5,000 in 1949 adjusted for today's dollars would be. And so it would be like $54,000. Yeah. Well, about one yeah, Bitcoin. Seems- it seems like um, it seems like the country that he went to, if it's the same as Gaddis, like Gaddis went to uh, Mexico and then to Central America, and it, it seems like he was briefly involved in this kind of uh, revolution that took place in uh, Costa Rica in like '48 or something. So I'm I'm thinking it must be in Costa Rica that uh, Otto was in as well. Um, but he, yeah, so he, he's trying to get sympathy for being in this, this revolution, which he hadn't been in. <laughs> and then actually he gets into the revolution. He, yeah. he was on a, he's on the banana plantation, um, which I'm pretty sure is why Pynchon begins Gravity's Rainbow with all the banana stuff. Oh, well. But I think, I don't know, you can, because like I spent the whole book assuming Otto was like a latent homosexual and that his whole relationship with that guy Jesse on the banana plantation was like he was you know they were sleeping together sort of or had a weird sort of dynamic there um did you guys think think of that because when I went back on the synopsis it didn't mention that as being uh the case but I, I didn't that I didn't think message. of that, but it's there's this whole now that I'm thinking of it, like that's um like Esther thought that of uh 
of Wyatt, right? And Otto. Yeah, she thinks of And him. Otto, yeah. And then and then uh, some others people's do too. I, I think guess. people thought that of Gaddis as well. Yeah, I wondered about that with Gaddis too. But so so that's interesting because when I think about the theme and the subject matter of this stuff, it definitely feels more like a beat subject matter, you know, so it's definitely the end of the war, everyone's partying, you know, it's like uh Paul Bowles marries someone, but they're still bisexual and have affairs, you know, that kind of stuff. Like everyone's doing drugs. But then this is really interesting in that it also has a real modernist feel to it. Just um, like you were saying, it, it bridges those two things. And like not just modernism, but I, going back to Renaissance, yeah, like art, it it uh, really marries modernity with with this sort of lost sense of religious uh, veneration. Um, the, like the, I don't know, the dialogue, a lot of the dialogue is just so the character's dialogue is like so superficial and sort of these modern characters anyway, sort of juxtaposed with the prose, which is just like describing it in these lavish, lush sentences, um, which sort of elevates it to, uh, to this religious sense, um, yeah, there's some great um, uh, critiques of science all the way through it as well. Yeah. Which is interesting. Like, uh, I'm just trying to find. Apparently, um, Mr. Pivner submits to a lobotomy at the end, which is really depressing and sad, which I didn't know. Um, yeah, he's um, the, the guy he kind of hooks up with to be his surrogate son. Yeah. Sort of convinces Eddie. him to, uh, I forget his name. Eddie Zefnik. Yeah. Convinces him to get a lobotomy. To stop him, his, to stop his, wait, but to stop his, um, uh, his penchant for counterfeiting, but he doesn't <laughs> yeah, even, he's yeah. not even a counterfeiter. He's a counterfeit counterfeiter. <laughs> like, well, he gets he gets busted for counterfeiting because Otto sent him some really expensive bathrobe. they tied him in with that and that's the only sort of contact that he has with Otto he doesn't end up meeting him at at all apparently Um, he there's a scene where he like they pass each other they're pissing together like which is very Ulysses kind of yeah 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 that's another whole thing is another well um (laughs) there's a lot a lot of another's uh (laughs) But what happened? Just another thing that happened that I didn't really understand, at least until tonight, is that the what befalls Reverend Quinn's ashes. Oh yeah, the, he gets sent to the his predecessor. This dopey priest sends his ashes along with a batch of flour, and he winds up cooked into the bread that. Wyatt is eating in the monastery during his huge monologue, which is just a really uh, overt sort of, uh, I don't know, the father yeah. and the son. <laughs> what sins of the it's, father? Uh, it's communion, right? Like that's uh, uh, it's yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, it's, it's all about. Uh, and um, this is another connection with the white goddesses that uh, everything gets um, like it's the whole story. 
the whole white goddess story is about the uh, the sacrifice of Dionysus or Osiris or Mithras, um, and in the shape of a goat or a bull, or and they get ripped apart by the followers, and then uh, as as part of the uh, as part of the rite, and it's it's all about it. Um, these fragments of the kind of holy fragments of these God characters, um, trapped through everything. Um, so that was sort of the Neoplatonic take on the, um, the myth of Dionysus and then Osiris is that you had these fragments of Osiris or Dionysus in everything. And so then it's a matter of recognizing them and then by recognizing them, bringing them together again as a whole and, and redeeming the world. Um, so it's like and a, with that we recognize 42 minutes <laughs> thank you for sharing it with us <laughs> you're welcome you've been listening to the 42 minute seasonal book club a production of sick book writing the sickbook.com for more information about the sick book our guests check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via itunes please be sure and visit our website at the if you like this podcast check out others as all the all the others are currently check out others as currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free we also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need just type book club and the links appear all this and more can be found at the thanks so much and dilige et quad vis fat Grab your coat and snatch your hat Leave your worries on the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street Can't you hear that bitter pot? And that happy tune is your step Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street I used to walk in the shade With the blues on parade No longer afraid The rover crossed over If I never had a cent I'll be rich as Rockefeller Gold dust at my feet On the sunny side of the street I used to walk in the shade With those blues on parade But I'm not afraid Cause the rover, he got over If I never had a cent I'd be rich as Rockefeller 
All those chicks round my feet On the sunny Sunny side of the street 